just uh, here celebrating the full moon and now it's the new moon again but uh, that's that's how time goes I guess and the moon it just waxes and wanes waxes and wanes and uh, and here we are again uh, anyway I'll, I'll just get right into the good stuff and uh, not uh, keep rambling on I have a terrific show for you I am going to be reading to you from Tara Isabel Zambrano's book, Death, Desire, and Other Destinations. Uh, it's a really beautiful book of flash put out by OK Donkey Press. I have a writing prompt and recipe for you from Alina Stefanescu and music by People in Cars. So uh, let's, uh, let's, get, let's get right into this. So this is from Tara Isabel Zambrano's Death, Desire, and Other Destinations. Wherever, whenever. Baba bought a Christmas tree because Tanya insisted on it. Two weeks later, at circle time, everyone in her class is going to talk about unwrapping gifts around a Christmas tree. And she does not want to be left out just because we don't go to church on Sundays. We worship several gods and goddesses in a temple, adorned by flowers covered in sandalwood fragrance, called on by constant ringing of bells. Ma sits quietly in the kitchen, stares at the mottled bark of oak in the backyard, her face a roiling ocean of emotions, her neck perpetually taut. She gets up and stirs the gravy for mutton, whispers to herself. Outside, the sunlight is shallow. Soon the festive mayhem will be over. It's hard to explain to our friends and their parents why we don't celebrate Christmas and watch their faces drop. Hindus, you said? They ask, like Buddhists? At the dinner table, we say our prayers. Tanya and I don't close our eyes. We watch our parents, their heads bowed and hands folded, whispering shlokas from ancient Hindu text. Unlike American parents, Ma and Baba don't touch each other in public. Ma never wears pants or skirts, even though she has remarkable legs. Ma instructs me to close my mouth while chewing. Tanya asks about the ornaments for the Christmas tree. Ma suggests using her imitation earrings, old necklaces, and silk handkerchiefs. Tanya shrugs. I know she's disappointed. We talk about decorating the house, and Pa says we can use the oil lamps from Diwali. It's not the same, Tanya resists. From the overhead bulb, light splashes on her face. She urges Ma and Baba to buy a few strings of bulbs for the tree in the front yard, sweating through her fleece. I place my hand over hers. 
Ma continues to suck the bone, little lumps of marrow falling on the plate. Her fingers licked clean. After the dinner, I pull out the trash cans to the roadside. The air pokes everywhere, a chill spreading through my body faster than fire. The houses are decorated like brides. I collect the mail and stay in the driveway listening to the distant evening traffic. I don't feel I belong here, not in the way Ma and Baba talk about their village in India, how they made it out to America for a better life for them and their kids. I don't think I belong where they come from. I am only familiar with a few alphabets of Hindi, garam masala and turmeric, differentiation between a few Hindu castes based on their last names. Tanya and I are at the border. Our citizenship is a string of digits in our passport. Our ethnicity, a questionnaire our parents wish we knew the answers to. We can look on either side and not find a home. Between my dusky fingers, flyers flap. Coupons for clothes and jewelry. Symmetrical trees that go up to the ceiling. Our fake tree stands next to the fireplace we never use and clean once a year. The LEDs blink hard, yellow and red. Isn't it nice, Baba says, lounging in his easy chair, smiling, extending his right arm towards me. Yes, I nod my head and hand him the mail, wishing I was like him, feeling at ease wherever, whenever. He has never said, I love you, to any of us. The words just don't come. In the background, the vents vibrate like small-winged birds, blast warm, dry air, and he asks me to reduce the temperature. Then he goes back to reading the mail, and the room glows in an artificial light, like a town in the middle of nowhere.
That was People in Cars with Flower. Cubes. During the day, we work in the labs, and at night we sleep on bunk beds in our cubes. Breakfast, lunch, and supper are brought into conference rooms. Each of us is given a different specification to work on, and we aren't allowed to discuss. There are cameras everywhere. We cannot leave this office until Project X is complete. Our families have received a shitload of money, and all of us have signed a waiver. Ken, my boss, works the hardest. I see him hunched over circuit boards in the lab, switching power sources, watching waveforms on the oscilloscope. He rarely eats. Sometimes I think he isn't real. Karen, on the other hand, is always in motion, setting up meetings, resolving issues with higher management. Her office has windows. I often stop by and look out. The world on the other side does not seem to care about Project X or us. Gary sits next to me and gets up every hour for a smoke break. He talks to his wife while working on layout or studying schematics. I know it's her because he says, I love you, bye, before disconnecting. Then he kicks at the processor and mouths, piece of shit. At night, he sings lullabies to himself. I fall asleep listening to his gruff humming, wondering how much time has passed in this godforsaken place. Every day, I go through a new segment of code, line by line, and fix bugs. In between, I have revelations. The words come together and form sand on a beach or create a mountain. I imagine swimming far away from them, or rock climbing until I slip and fall, and the words revert to lines of code, a language whose purpose eludes me. After 10 p.m., Karen comes to collect data from our desktops. I can recognize her silhouette. Her high heels click and she sighs as she enters information in her handheld while I pretend to be asleep. She has administrative privileges. One day, I want to be in her position, able to control some number of things, able to say what I like. I talk to my family via Skype or WhatsApp. My parents are always smiling, drinking wine, wearing expensive clothes. Sometimes when they don't answer, I feel I don't exist anymore. In the bathroom mirror, I'm often startled to notice myself. A woman who has a pointed nose, high cheekbones, and light bouncing off her curves. Those nights I touch myself. The air above me illuminates like sections of code I've been working on. It seems beautiful and wrong all at once. A few times, I feel as if Gary is watching. I'm worried someday he might come over and do things that I won't be able to resist. He might say, I love you. I wouldn't know what to say back, even though it's against what we signed and our cubes are fingerprint protected. Our days look the same, feel the same. I think I'm getting used to all the quiet here, the fluorescent lights, the bright monitors displaying color-coded ACDC signals. Maybe this is what death will be like. Endless toil, the circuit board inside you rattling loose, a million lines of software in every cell pushing boundaries you've set for yourself, like this cube, this office, this body, this world, another Project X in the works, except with more grace, innovation.
That was People in Cars with Speak. Alligators. The stare of the tribal girl, taut as a cable. She sits opposite to me, next to an older woman, probably her mother, in an open truck. Because of the bus driver's strike, I have hitched a ride from Jaipur to Jaisalmer. The girl's tattoos shine in the air, purple ink on sunburned skin, a small nose, a slight overbite. I don't know if she's looking at me or past me. The wind is making puffy noises in our ears, pouring the desert. The tire marks follow us until we are on a tar road. The truck jerks and the girl lets out a sharp cry. She has thin lips. It's hard to imagine the piercing sound that came from her throat. The early morning light coats my eyes. When my mother committed suicide, I was ten, and at the time was playing in my room with a Barbie she got for my birthday. My father did not cry. He adjusted his spectacles, called her a hungry shadow, and carried on with his life. Some relatives claim my mother often talked about a sacred river where spirits slept, a forest where every tree was an animal in its previous life. She drew illustrations of foxes and snakes with human faces and about how we borrowed bodies and faces from hell and heaven, demons and saints. We passed by small tea stalls and repair shops, the bicyclists who prefer to ride off-road, shouting crudest insults. A sparrow sits on the side of the truck, just a strange rush of wind between us. I look at the tribal girl, a slight reflection of light at the edge of her face. I can smell her sweat, and a warm, serpentine feeling takes root in my gut and grows. The sight of her eyes makes me want. Maybe she's thinking magic between her sun-squinted eyes, while she continues to twist the edge of her dupata around her finger. I'm wearing my mother's kurta. I'm carrying her dresses, her scarves, her socks in my backpack, her kajal. I'm carrying her ashes. Before her demise, I didn't know how much space a life required. Beyond a room, beyond a house, beyond a glance or a touch, the whole world. Now I know how much space the dead need. There's a dead baby alligator blocking the road. The truck stops and we all get down wondering how it got there. The old woman asks us to pick it up. Her voice has an authority none of us can challenge. Her arms are covered with thick silver bangles and her fingers are filled with rings. On her forehead, a tattoo of a snake eating its tail. She says it's a bad omen if we leave the animal behind. Her words cut through the air. It will bring a long-drawn illness on all of us. A shame. A curse, she adds, and stares at the horizon. The driver lifts the beast and wedges it between the rows of passengers, its thick armor weighing the air down. It smells like sewage and burnt rubber. The girl looks at me, licks her lips, her eyes pink with dust and exhaust. I clear my throat and tie my hair up in a bun. The day's heat burns at my nape. Between us, an occasional breeze, the rattling doors of the truck, rings of sweat in my armpits. I am holding the rail on the edge, its metal hot in my hand. We pass the railway crossing and the kids playing near the railway tracks yell and whistle. The boys on the truck shout back.
The girl raises her face towards the big silver sky at this hour, closes her eyes, and lets the sunlight soak her face. The truck rises and sinks over the tracks on the ground. Rubbing against our feet like coarse sugar, the animal's body wobbles, blood and slime out of its mouth pooling in the corners as the vehicle steers into the dissolving light and the keen euphoria of birds at this hour. I must have been about twelve when I started locking my bedroom door at night and in the morning would find it unlatched. Unable to sleep for days, weeks, I sat by the window, suspecting my mother would enter my room any moment. But nothing ever happened. Perhaps my mother was watching me while I was awake and only left the room when I fell asleep. The tribal girl follows me to the bathroom and in a dark corner pulls out a cigarette and lights a match. The burning butt looks like a red laser dot. To extinguish the match, she runs her tongue over it. Then she hands me the cigarette and asks me to keep the heat in a bit longer before letting the smoke out. It keeps the warmth in your words, she says. Her voice sticks to my skin. Our outlines coalesced in vapor. She caresses the fabric of my kurta, smells it, and lifts it. Prickles of dry skin grow wet. Her gaze cleaves me open. She unbuttons my jeans, pushes her fingers down. The cold surfaces of her rings maneuver inside my body, one by one. The sun is long gone. The weight of her one hand rests on my waist. The reek of urine in the air makes me squirm. I push her against the wall and we are a tangle of tongues. A lone bulb with sickly yellow light shines on the other side of the bathroom. Her tattoos rise and fall with every breath until I let out a muffled moan and it seems her eyes move all the way up to where her head begins. Slick everywhere, I blink. They return to where they are meant to be. I stay in the same spot after the girl withdraws. The space between us thickens as she licks her fingers. Afterwards, she tells me that the old woman is not her mother. Walking back to the truck, I feel heavy and out of breath, as if I'm climbing a hill. I needed someone to pull out my nightmares, the tribal girl says. Nightmares? I see dead alligators in my dreams, she whispers, and runs her bronze, still wet finger on my lips. In the distance, Jaisalmer looks monstrous, with its twinkling, incandescent eyes. I recall the gloomy bedrooms, my mother on the bed, a black scarf tied around her head, Dad sleeping on his solitary bed in a separate room. In the morning, he wouldn't look at her or talk to her, and she'd hover around him like a ghost begging for life. Later, unable to say anything, I'd oil and braid her hair and the rose tattoo on the back of her neck would deepen in color with every breath of mine. The alligator has started to rot. Its suffocating odor pervades the air. The tribal mother urges us to carry it a little longer. The girl sits next to me, our thighs rubbing, our nostrils burnt under a common stench. The boys on the opposite row are staring at us. The wind brushes her long locks on my face. For one fleeting moment, I want to tell her that she's beautiful, but she doesn't need to be told that. There's no before or after for her. She knows who she is. She hasn't curled up after sex like I have. 
I open the backpack. It's all in there. The clothes, the cudgel, and the ashes. Her smell. I wonder if there's a way for someone to pull out the loss from me. The tribal girl holds my hand. Her rough, scaly skin lunges and lurks under the passing street lamps, a sensation like rolling marbles up and down my spine. The old woman pushes the beads of a rosary. Her eyes roll back. Her lips mumble. She says something to the girl, and the girl responds with a nod. The air gets a few degrees colder. Suddenly weary, I place my head on her shoulder, a dark, muscled trunk. I dream that my father and the old woman from the truck are rubbing my mother's body raw with turmeric and sandalwood until all that is left is sand, a desert. Then they open my legs and empty it inside me. My chest is prickly, a cactus filled with sap. An alligator grows in my womb. When it's born, it devours me whole. I wake up and we're crossing a river, its water dark as oil. My teeth dug into the tribal girl's shoulders, a sharp metallic taste of blood filling my mouth, unspooling warmth in my breath. We're passing by streetlights, thin fluorescent tubes electric above us, the sky dark, expanding with quiet. The girl pats my face, asks me to go back to sleep. The boys are snoring and drooling. They whisper indecipherable phrases like prophecies. Far away, dogs howl. A pack of hyenas scream. The moon is swallowed behind a row of clouds. When it emerges like a half-illuminated hip, the tribal mother lets out a wail, says it is time for them to get down. The driver asks her if we can get rid of the alligator. She shrugs her shoulders as the girl helps her down. Two boys pick up the animal and throw it by the roadside. Under a faint streetlight, the beast looks like a mound of dirt. Finite. Done. The girl and the old woman walk into the night, the jingle of their ornaments audible for a bit, then lost. Abandoned, I hold on to the shape her body has left behind in me, part home, part grave. The engine revs, and I turn around to a sound. The alligator shudders, its bulging eyes shining near the edge of its head. I let out a cry and keep looking at it, blinking, until it goes back to being dead, until it disappears into the night.
That was People in Cars with Leather. Spawn. I have a bunny in my stroller, nibbling on twigs and sprouts. Its claws tap my cell phone screen and call my contacts. Then, overcome with amazement, it pulls the Velcro on the inside flap of the stroller, snuggles behind a baby blanket. I call him Brownie. How can you stand it, my husband says, struck with logic, staring at Brownie's muddy fur pads. He suggests I should see a therapist. But what does he know? He hasn't felt the babies who have unfurled and fizzled inside me. He hasn't felt the sadness that grows month after month when the dark fluid stains my thighs, leaves outlines on my panties after countless wash cycles. I exhale deeply and take Brownie to the playground, watch children going up and down the slides, screeching in delight, hanging upside down on monkey bars like bats. When they fall, their mothers hug them, wipe their tears, brush the dirt off their knees. Brownie sits in my lap, placid and waiting, while I wave and smile. In response, a few women chomp their upper lips and walk away with their kids, their bodies becoming smaller than impossible to see. Others sit on the bench, their shoulders hunched, gazing at the horizon clear-coated with birdsong. The next morning, I carry Brownie in a shoulder bag to a convenience store. It peeps from the open zipper of the bag, biting its teeth into the leather, its brown eyes contrasting with big black pupils. In the afternoon, we drive to the outskirts of our blue-collar town, past the railway tracks surrounded by cornfields, growing and browning of stalks. We roll in loam and sickly yellowing Midwestern light as jet streams slash the sky and freighters honk on a single-lane highway that circles the county. Dogs howl in the distance. The air smells of roasted potatoes and dust. We lie face up, enthralled by a lone cloud, tranquil, unfazed by the rustle. At night, Brownie and I dig the ground in the backyard under a constant throbbing of stars, feel the day's warmth in the lumps of dirt. After an hour, Brownie hops away but comes back, its fur against my skin, its heart beneath my palm while the darkness breathes perfect round dew in our hair and eyelids. I sing a lullaby, the timber of my voice ingrained in the flickering orange glow of the streetlight. When the dawn froths, I make out my husband's profile in the doorway, a sweep of his hair. He holds my hand, takes me inside, wipes my face and cleans the dirt under my nails, breathes deeply as if he's about to go under. It can't go on, he says, his sudden broken glass voice. Brownie can't call out loudly from a crib. Brownie can't suck your breasts. Before he leaves the room, I glance at the sweat on his brow, a blood stain between the breadcrumbs on his shirt. Misty-eyed, I stare outside the window to a mound of soil circled by golden light. And I want to hold Brownie, cling to it like a fish, kiss its ears. Brownie! I howl the sound sharp like its teeth. Everything stays still, except a startled crow that swoops up in panic towards an unyielding, colorless sky. 
That was People in Cars with Wave. Shedding. In a neighboring slum in Mumbai, the open stage is flooded with blue and green strobes. Rock star sweeties dazzling. Tight golden pants and a matching unbuttoned jacket. Goggles and metallic chains. He calls Edgemira, my stepmother, on stage, and together they hip-hop on Bollywood duets. Edgemira stumbles in her high heels, and Sweetie seizes her arm, keeps her upright. The rest of us sway like a slow night. Ajmira is a 30-something homebody living with me after my father died. But here she's radiant in a silver skirt and a busty green top. Shimmies with Sweetie as if she's a teenager like me and has never been touched. Sweetie stays over for chicken curry and peppered rice, Ajmira's specialty. His eyes, brown and shrunk, blink hard. There's something girlish about his hair, long with bangs. Later, I wake up in the living room, dark and hot. When I walk outside, I can see through the bedroom's open window. Ajmira's naked, her legs wrapped around Sweetie. A flickering streetlight makes them appear and disappear, lunge and hide. Weeks later, I see an egg in the bathroom, oblong, 
off-white. We need to throw it somewhere far away from here. Edgemira stands next to me and presses the heel of her palms to her eyes. Blood trickles down her thighs. I open my mouth, but words get lost, part fear, part disgust. That evening, we walk silently past the railway tracks, past the sugar factory, leave the egg under a banyan tree. The next time, Sweetie stays for a whole month, inserts himself into our lives. He gets flowers and cosmetics for Ajmira, calls her darling. I feel aroused and irritated, as if those feelings are supposed to belong together. At night, I imagine Sweetie's cool touch beating the stuffy humidity of the city in my body. Dream about a heap of eggs on the outskirts of Mumbai, released into the sea. Half-snake, half-human clones of Sweetie swimming back to the shore, winking at me. Ajmira delivers another egg. Her skin looks pale and wrung out, the white of her eyes shot through with tiny red veins. He's cursed, I warn her. She smirks, her hands covered in soap foam, the water from the tap splashing from the surface of a dirty dish. You want him, don't you? She glances at me as we're walking towards the banyan. That forked tongue in your mouth, those slippery scales between your legs, a brand new body that emerges after shedding. Oh, so sweet. The next few times when Sweetie's around, I borrow backless blouses with mini skirts from my friends wear low-cut tops and fitted jeans. Every time he kisses Ajmira, the heaviness in my chest grows, my eyes water. One evening, when Ajmira's outside, Sweetie sits next to me while I'm watching TV and places his hand on my thigh. I go slippery inside. You know what I'd like to do to you? He removes his glasses, brings his face closer to mine. I'd like to peel away that spotless skin of yours and wear it so it never sheds again. Ajmira feeds on her eggs, Sweetie's recommendation. She looks slender, her face glows, and all I think is if Sweetie would have me when she's gone. One late morning, I walk into the bedroom, quiet as a secret. Sweetie's drunk from the previous night and snoring. Ajmira's next to him, her fingers laced in his. When I place the curved blade against her neck, she jerks and breathes hard. The meat knife drops, and I see her face, afraid, familiar, and desperate to hold on to love. In a flash, her body turns purple and then darker, narrows into a snake that slithers outside the window. Sweetie hisses, raises his hood. For the first time, I see his body, like a long scar on a face, like a crack in the floor. Wait, I say, and start crying, but he lowers himself and follows her. Outside, the birds go crazy as if they've spotted danger. I close the window and lean against the wall with a memory of their presence, just empty, missing. Under the hot air circulating from a ceiling fan, a snakeskin trembles on the bed.
that was People in Cars with Birds. Between Not Much and Nothing. After my mother died, my father removed the batteries from every clock in our house, adjusted their hands to the time when my mother was born, when she married my father, when she gave birth to me, when she died. My father claimed he dreamt of my mother every night, sometimes by the lake, her lilac sari lifted up to her knees, her feet burrowed in warm sand, or at a party, walking up to him in her flowing off-shoulder dress, bright lipstick and heavy European perfume he'd never approve of, asking for a slow dance, or lying in a hammock outside our home, an oversized hat over her face, Anna Karenina resting on her chest. I shrugged a lot, I let him be, kissed him on his forehead, said I was sorry, and switched off the lights of his room. And my father's eyes were half open, staring at the moon, a little patch of white in a dark space. My father slept more. When he woke up, he cried. I waited for him to stay awake for at least a few hours a day, even though I knew he was less lonely in his dreams. But he stayed in bed, snoring, sobbing or talking to my mother, between not much and nothing. Mom never went to parties or had a hammock, I told him one of the few times he was up and lucid. I know, he said, but she always wanted to. Now his first death anniversary dawns gray in the still house. I dig through the closets, bring out the sleeping clocks, push the batteries in, watch their crawling hands. The creaking door opens to the bedroom where I can see my father rising from his bed where he died sleeping. I imagine my mother snug in her grave. The sound tick-tock fills the room. Something happening, something passing.
that was People in Cars with Ion, and it's time for a little mazé. And I have a snack size interview for you with Bob Records, uh, who put out this album by People in Cars. And People in Cars is the brainchild of multi instrumentalist and visual artist Ete Pisano, Los Angeles based by way of Washington, D.C. The project has seen multiple musical leanings and featured numerous additional musicians. However, Pisano is the founder and sole consistent member. The latest release, Places, features brand new sonic territory, heavily weighted and guitar-driven blissed-out chill tunes that are equally intriguing and groovy. I agree. All performed and recorded by Pisano in his L.A. home. Pisano has played in such rock bands as Aberdeen, The Dangerous Summer, and Senses Fail. And uh, uh, Bob Records uh, was kind enough to answer some questions I sent. One, what is Bob Records and what is your mission? Bob Records is a very small labor of love record label run by one guy, but made possible with the help of friends. The inspiration behind the label comes from the deep affinity that I had growing up admiring DIY labels such as Asian Man Records. Equally as inspirational are my friends. They are the common thread between mission and inspiration. They're such incredibly gifted artists, musically, visually, and everything in between. Bob Records has 35 releases, and they range from cassette tapes, vinyl records, compact discs, and digital in format. In recent years, I've pivoted the mission of the label to focus more heavily on digitalizing music from the local scene I grew up in in the DMV, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. A lot of these recently released digital albums were completely gone from the internet because they came out at weird late 90s, early aughts juncture where music streaming and MP3 host sites just weren't around, and certainly the ones that were were not preserved. Bob Reck has become a bit of a digital archive. 2. What is your first memory of People in Cars? The music musician. What is your first memory of People in Cars? Actual People in Cars. That would have to be 8th grade in my parents' basement. Ete Pisano is the sole consistent member of the band, and we met through mutual friends and quickly discovered our shared love for pop punk, especially early Green Day. He came over and we jammed, guitar and bass, to old Green Day songs like Dry Ice and Paper Lanterns. I couldn't believe, and still can't believe, that he could nail the solo in Dry Ice. Wow, first memory of literally people in cars. Probably sitting in the back seat with my mom driving our old Volvo and listening to cassette tapes. Cabbage Patch Kids is ringing in my ears. I wasn't tall enough to see any other people, strangers, in their own cars, so I guess it was an insular memory of very familiar people in a very familiar car. 3. What is your process and creative practice like for choosing the music on your label? Friends drive the entirety of the entity. I wish I had a more creative answer, but the friends of mine who are gracious enough to let me slap my Bob Records stamp on their tunes are my inspiration and my North Star amidst any creative process. They're the creative ones. My friend Mike, who drew the Bob Records logo, inspired the latest compilation that I released, which is called The Way Things Used to Be Volume 1, which you can find at bobrecords.bandcamp.com slash album slash the hyphen way hyphen things hyphen used hyphen two hyphen b hyphen vol hyphen one. 
It's a 22-band collection of music from the ska punk scene in the DMV that we both grew up participating in during the late 90s, early aughts. Again, these tunes were long gone from the World Wide Web. It was a two-year process of going through my CD collection and contacting members of those old bands to get my hands on some of their recordings. That then sparked the idea to try and unearth as much of this old music as I could and put it online in case there were others out there who wanted to relive the nostalgia. I'm still interested in releasing new music for my friends, but I'm also focused on preserving uniquely special tunes from yesteryears. 4. If you were making a perfume to capture the essence of people in cars, what scents would you choose for the top notes, first impressions, heart notes, what comes out a little later, bass notes, what lingers? Top notes are certainly that of a bright citrus. Heart notes turn to lavender. Bass notes are chocolate. 5. What are your current obsessions? Compact discs and bench pressing. Bonus question, what stuffed animal would you be? What stuffed animal would I be? Absolutely a teddy bear. Well, I definitely approve of that choice. Thanks so much, Rob of Bob Records, for answering those questions and telling us a little bit about your label. Um, Thanks to People in Cars for sharing your music. You can find and buy the album Places by People in Cars at bobrecords.bandcamp.com slash album slash places. And check out all of the music Bob Records has to offer at bobrecords.bandcamp.com slash music.
that was People in Cars with Fans. I guess it's time for Picolia, and I hope you're hungry, because on the menu today is a delicious writing prompt and recipe from Alina Stefanescu. Bulls, a polenta with cheese event. Something my dad used to make when I was little, and something I make and serve with tomato and cucumber salad. One and a half cups water, one and a half cups buttermilk, two teaspoons salt, one teaspoon butter, one and a quarter cup yellow cornmeal, medium ground, four ounces brinza de cochelets, or grated creamy Toscano with coastal Syrah from Trader Joe's, or salted feta cheese. One, add water, buttermilk, and salt to a saucepan. Heat over high until it boils vigorously, then add butter. Two, with one hand, start pouring the cornmeal in the boiling liquid while stirring continuously with the handle of a long wooden spoon until all the cornmeal has been poured out and the liquid bubbles again. Three, as soon as the liquid starts to boil, lower heat and continue to stir, cooking over low heat until the polenta begins to thicken. Then remove from heat and keep stirring until you have a paste-like consistency. Four, don't let it cool. Quickly add your grated cheese to the mix, stirring it in slowly. Five, serve warm with fresh tomatoes, dill, onion, and cucumber salad. About this magical cheese. You can find Brinza de Cochelets for sale along the roadways in Transylvania. It's a delicious cheese made from sheep's milk, often by shepherds up in the mountains. The strong flavor and softness comes from the combination of cutting sweet kosh into small slices, salting it, and then hand-mixing in a large wooden bowl. The mixture is then stuffed into bellows of fir tree bark, very lightly smoked, aromatic of pine resin. It's freaking amazing. Writing prompt. Stirring syntax. So much of the boules depends on texture, and when I think of texture and poetry, syntax comes to mind. I love Martha Collins's On Syntax and Poetry, and how she discusses the way Carl Phillips uses it to build tension, to add motion and suspense at the level of the line. Syntax and line work together to control what George Oppen called the sequence of disclosure, which is another way of saying, Tension emerges in ordering, layering, and positioning of subject-object relations. Syntax enables us to express hesitation or doubt by using unstable conjunctions like but or as if. We can use techniques like parataxis, arranging side by side, to speed up the line, to thicken it, to complicate it by omitting subordinating conjunctions. Subordinate clauses build suspense as anticipation. The reader looks for what Carl Phillips calls the governing sentence. And we can use hypotaxis, arranging under, adding subordinating conjunctions such as when, although, and after to break things up, to create less agglomerated relationships, to evoke temporal complexity and specificity, to slow down time. Meaning shifts when the order of phrases is shifted, and there is certain stalling motion when the verb does not come, when the action remains the gaze rather than the eye. 
This is the magic of syntax. It can be stirred paratactically. It can be shaken with hypotaxis. The texture depends on what you add to the mix and how much power you give the spoon. Now to write. In ancient Greek poetry, love challenges the notion of time. Love is a temporal paradox, its own time. Quote, the experience of Eros is a study in the ambiguities of time. Desire seems to the lover to demolish time in the instant when it happens, and yet to gather all other moments into itself in unimportance. Yet simultaneously, the lover perceives more sharply than anyone else the difference between the now of his desire and all the other moments called then that line up before and after it. From Anne Carson, Eros the Bittersweet. Time is the tension in this exercise. Time is the theme and the obsession. Make a list of 15 particular images which come to mind when thinking of a beloved person. Title the poem with a governing sentence. Make it specific to time, love, the beloved, place, etc. This sentence should do the explanatory work of the poem. Then stir those images into a single stanza poem with minimal use of conjunctions, creating a sort of imagistic disorderment. Now pick five images from the poem and write a 14-line poem that makes use of hypotaxis and or conjunctions that build suspense. Push back against the seriality of the movement by adding unstable conjunctions, by giving it a circular motion. Consider using repetition at the beginning or end of the line to build this simultaneity. See Denise Smith's poem, My President, for example. Leave it untitled. Find your governing sentence and keep moving or editing until the governing sentence feels like the hinge, or else the poems turn. Thank you so much to Alina for creating that amazing writing prompt for the Violet Hour and sharing that delicious-sounding recipe. I uh, hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. And Alina Stefanescu is a really beautiful writer. She was born in Romania and lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She has a number of books out. And she's just fantastic. And you can check out more of her work at her website, www.alinastefanescuwriter.com. That's www.alinastefanescuwriter.com. Thank you.
that was People in Cars with Slides. And uh, now why don't we hop on the theremin and uh, go take a quick trip and see Miss Mousy. <laughs> Miss Mousy, oh, it's great to be back on the moon with you. How have things been? Oh, pretty good. Uh, actually, I, I did my uh, first movie project. It's so exciting to be in the movies. Oh, yeah, it's, it, that's that's wonderful, Miss Mousy. I know, I know you've been in some movies, Mr. Bear, so it's probably old hat to you. Oh, uh, no, not at all. I, you know, movie movie business is, is fun stuff. Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, I played Country Mouse in a, uh, an adaptation of Country Mouse City Mouse. Oh wow, that's that's so cool. Uh, I think I have the acting bug now. Um, yeah, it's it's contagious, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Um, but you know, I'm uh, I'm still a two-dimensional hand-drawn mouse studying herbalism, and um, you know, even if I get to be in some more puppet films, uh, I'll I'll still be studying the herbs. You know, I love the plants. Yeah, me too. It's uh, you know, springtime now here in Wisconsin, and uh, everything's blooming. Yeah, it's um, everything's blooming here on the moon too. Do you have anything you'd like to share with us, uh, Miss Mousy? Oh, yeah. Um, I've been very inspired listening to those beautiful stories from Tara Isabel Zambrano's Death, Desire, and Other Destinations. I know I know, death is in the title, but um, they make me feel so alive. Yeah, it's uh, beautiful prose, isn't it? Oh, just just gorgeous. Um, that dreamy music from people in cars and that prompt and recipe from Alina Stefanescu. Oh, I'm just, I've, I've got spring fever, Mr. Bear. Yeah, I, I do too, Miss Mousy, I have to admit. Uh, do, you have, do you have any cures for spring fever? Uh, I don't think spring fever needs any curing, Mr. Bear. Um, you know, plus, I don't cure anything. I'm a two-dimensional hand-drawn mouse studying herbalism. Um, but, uh, I'd like to uh, uh, enhance the spring fever. Uh, right now, I'm in love with nettles. Oh, uh, tell, tell me more, Miss Mousy. Well, Mr. Barry, you might know that nettles, uh, stinging nettles, are covered with little hairs. So you do have to be careful if you don't want to get your paws stung. But some people... Um, get stung uh, on purpose. It's called urtication, and some people find it helpful for things like arthritis. Oh, fascinating. Uh, luckily I don't have any arthritis, uh, in my, my, uh, little stuffed joints. Oh, that's good. Um, but anyway, nettle is fantastic. It's, uh, so packed full of nutrients and vitamins and minerals and it's just it's just a great food um you can make long infusions of it uh but something i like to do now in the spring um because when it's growing now uh is cut the tops off the uh the young shoots and make pesto Ooh, i love pesto yeah and uh you know you just you 
cut the tops off the leaves and the young stems and it doesn't hurt it it's going to keep growing um but you you know you can have some great food now oh do you have a recipe for this pesto you make um well i don't really use recipes so much mr bear um but i have you know guidelines i have i have things i put in um pesto's really easy uh you just you know it doesn't have to be basil a lot of people think it's basil only and basil's great but um let me tell you nettles and other wild greens you get in the spring uh they're just delicious oh this is making me hungry miss mousy yeah i know i'm i'm getting hungry myself but so you just have to carefully pick some nettles and um and then i like to blanch them uh you just bring some a pot of water to a boil and and dunk the uh, the nettles in uh, to cook for a minute and that takes the sting right out of them. Oh really? That that's it? Yeah, just a little little heat, little cooking, and and uh, then they're they're fine. Not just not going to sting you at all anymore. Um, except you know, sting you in the heart with love. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Anyway, and then uh, don't forget, uh, then I, I would drink that water or cook with it because it's got some nutrients already in it. But, um, you know, squeeze out the uh, the blanched nettles and uh, I blend them up with some cloves of garlic. I like a lot of garlic, um, so I put a lot of cloves in. And um, squeeze uh, some fresh lemon juice in there and a little olive oil. And you just blend it up, or you can pound it up with a mortar and pestle if you if you want to work out. Oh uh, yeah, or you know if you've got some some you know emotions to 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 vent. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's very therapeutic using a mortar and pestle. Um, and um, that that's it really. I mean, you can add nuts if you want. You know, um, pine nuts, but honestly, those are so expensive at the grocery store. I don't buy them. Um, if I do nuts, I usually put in walnuts, um, but you can make it without nuts, which is also nice for people who have nut allergies. Um, and, you know, some people like to put in Parmesan and, and cheese, and, you know, I am a mouse and I do like my cheese, uh, but I I often don't put any in into the, my pesto. If, you know, just really greens and, and garlic and olive oil and lemon, That's that's pretty much what you need. Well, that sounds delicious, Miss Mousy. Uh, thanks, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and you know, you can put pesto in your eggs, on sandwiches, on pasta, and um, I like to just eat it by the spoon. Thanks so much, Miss Mousy. I, I think I'm going to go make some pesto now. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. I think I'm going to go make some too. Um, come back anytime. Oh, I, I will. Take care, Miss Mousy. I'll see you on the full moon. Okay, bye. Bye.
that was People in Cars with Draft. And that's just about the end of the show, but I'm going to squeeze in one more flash from Tara Isabel Zambrano's Death Desire and Other Destinations. Separation. You never see the people because they keep different hours. But when the air conditioning isn't humming or the dishwasher isn't running, you hear what drops on the other side of the wall. Books, silverware, curses translating into nightfall, the toilet flush followed by a shower. Every Friday evening, laughter, throbbing, pulsing of a body ruined by pleasure, receding click-clack of stilettos, the ceiling sound of a shutting door, the vibration of the elevator. You wonder where they are going. Do they ever hear you? Some days you wait for a sound because you haven't spoken since the last conversation you had in your office before the weekend. The silence splits your brain. You press your ears harder to open them up. The teeth white walls, the concrete floor below you slightly uneven. Clap, thump of your slippers. You open the window. A bright summer haze falls on your clothes and your poetry books, on your face, squinting your eyes. Heat ripples in the air, settling a verse on your chapped lips. In the distance, a bulldozer demolishes an old building, an orange cloud growing around it. At first, the noise seems to be harsh, and then a monastic chant, leveling the voices from another year, another decade, another century. You try to imagine their faces, emboldened jaws, sharp noses, expressive bright eyes, perhaps like the neighbors you have never met. The shining dust from the rubble streams in and mixes with your breath, like a fish swimming to the surface for oxygen. You open your mouth wide, eat the day slowly. And uh, that's it. That's that's the show today. I hope you've enjoyed the work of Tara Isabel Zambrano. She moved from India to the United States two decades ago and works as a semiconductor chip designer. She has a lot more fantastic work out there. This is her first book. And you can find out more about her and her work on her website, taraisabelzambrano.wordpress.com. That's T-A-R-A-I-S-A-B-E-L-Z-A-M-B-R-A-N-O dot wordpress dot com. And her book, Death, Desire, and Other Destinations, is available from OK Donkey Press. And their website is okdonkeymag.com. That's O-K-A-Y donkeymag.com. Thanks again to Tara Isabel Zambrano, Alina Stefanescu, People in Cars, and Bob Records for sharing their words and music and time with the Violet Hour. Don't forget to try out that uh, wonderful writing prompt from Alina. If you do write something uh, for that or any of the prompts I've shared on the Violet Hour, uh, feel free to share them with me. You can email me at violethourmoon at gmail.com. 
Uh, also, any musicians out there interested in having their work considered for feature on the show, uh, email me at uh, violethourmoon at gmail.com. Thanks so much. Uh, keep an eye on the moon. I'll be back with you later this month. Be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousie believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, You can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. This podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest-running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.